Today on the show, we're going to take a complex systems view of human conflict. Now, if you think of the reasons why people fight, you have huge diversity in why that takes place. And you also have huge diversity in the terrain in which wars take place. So if you're trying to get a complex systems view of this, are you just going to find diversity or are you going to find some common themes? Well, today on the show, we're joined by Neil Johnson, Professor of Physics and Head of the Dynamic Online Networks Lab at George Washington University. And Neil's been on the show before and he talked about the sand pile model. And if you haven't heard that, you should probably go back and check it out because many of the ideas in it we'll bring into this show and the next. So in the next episode, part two, we're going to talk about human conflict in the post-internet era. But in this episode, we're going to cover the pre-internet era. In fact, we're going to go back more than 100 years. We're going to start at one of the world's great conflicts, the First World War. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Neil Johnson, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the pre-internet human conflict. What's the background about counting casualties in, in war? It's a very interesting topic, the study of war, even in academia, because obviously, I mean, just go on a bookstore, look around, there are plenty of books and even more movies about war. But it's actually not very common to analyze patterns of numbers within a war. And this kind of shows a divide in terms of, let's face it, war, human conflict. We're among the only living creatures on the planet. I think there's like one variety of chimpanzee or something like this that actually en masse kill each other. We organize ourselves in order to attack and overcome a group, maybe of the same size or bigger or smaller, violently. And so of all the crazy things to do, of all the complex things that can do, what actually leads to this makes this study of war and study of conflict a very complex system, however we want to decide about complex systems. But interestingly, in academia, there's a lot of understanding and analysis of, for example, what might have sparked the start of a war, what were the tensions going on at the international level, but not really about the mechanics, the kinetics of war. In other words, in the end, what is it that makes it that on Tuesday there's five casualties, then there's none on Wednesday, and then on Thursday there are 100? And I mean, is that just random? Is it chaotic? I mean, war sounds to be a chaotic thing. Is it possible that there's some kind of pattern in those numbers that we're missing? Well, that got me interested in the study of conflict around the start of actually the um, Second Iraq War. But I wasn't the first, like all these things, you know, there were plenty of smarter people who thought about this than, than, than me. But the first one was actually somebody called Lewis Fry Richardson, who looked at conflicts while he was in one. So let me just quickly tell the story of that remarkable person. Lewis Fry Richardson 
was a conscientious objector during World War I. And he ended up in the, the free ambulance service in, in the trenches. I think it was the French service. And he was absolute pacifist. He really, as a conscientious objector, he wasn't just trying to avoid war. He absolutely detested the idea of war. But he was also a scientist. And so he was really the first person to start thinking, well, maybe if I can understand war, maybe if I can understand the numbers in war, because he was a physicist deep down, maybe I can understand how to avoid war. So he started collecting the casualties that he was seeing on a daily basis in the trenches, not just during the war, but also after the First World War. And... This was a very unpopular thing to do because it was asking awkward questions of authorities. Well, how many were killed on this day? How many were killed? On the... And he couldn't get the numbers of the daily blows of how many were killed, and let alone the First World War, but also in, in other wars. All he could get were very crude estimates of rough numbers. And so started decades of hard work by himself, completely unfunded, collecting together what historians had written about numbers of deaths, estimated numbers of deaths. And historians write amazing things. They write amazing books. But buried in there, there can be numbers. And so he started compiling these numbers. And as word got out that he was collecting numbers about wars, people started writing to him and sending him numbers numbers that their grandfather had written down about a certain war or their great-great-grandfather about a, the civil war. And so he was collecting together numbers. He, he even got numbers to do with bandit attacks in Asia and all, all sorts of different sizes of gangs in Chicago, violent attacks, and all, all sorts of violence and collective violence. The interesting thing is, Although he was doing all this without computers, he was doing all this without any way of really kind of getting at the detail. He couldn't Google anything, of course. All he could do was do plots. And so he did a plot of the number of people that were estimated to be killed in a particular war. And he counted those plots, he counted those wars up by the number of wars that had the same number of killings. Very much like all of us, even if we don't like, you know, statistics and curves and, you know, most of us don't on a, you know, on any given day, we don't like to get our heads around too much around statistics, but we all know about a bell curve. We probably remember it ourselves in school. Go into your classroom, do the heights of the kids in the classroom with you. You know, there's always a tallest one, there's always a shortest one, and there's a kind of like an average height. And let's just say the average height is around, well, let's just take it around adults, maybe, I don't know, something like five foot, five foot eight. And there'll always be some people with, you know, maybe six foot one, and there'll be some that are five foot, but it will be a bell curve, a so-called normal or Gaussian distribution. In other words, it's peaked, it has a pretty much an average and there are fluctuations around it, say, maybe down just below five foot up to maybe six foot six. But there's nobody of 50 feet and there's nobody of 500 feet. I mean, we build buildings. Just imagine you build a building, you build a hospital, you build schools, and suddenly the 50 foot person turns up or the 500 foot. I mean, you can see. <laughs> um, so Richardson, 
when he took the numbers for casualties in wars. So he didn't get anything like that upside down U-shape, that bell curve. In fact, he got a curve that what we now call a very fat tail distribution. The tail of the distribution, instead of being a very sharp upside down U, had a, a much slower decay. So you're saying now that fundamentally he didn't find the average number of fatalities per war. Like he ended up with decaying curve where you could have wars with significant number of fatalities, but as, I, but as you got really big numbers of fatalities, there are fewer and fewer of those wars, but they could still happen. Correct. So remarkably, when we put it on a log-log scale, in fact, when Richardson had the idea of putting it on a log-log scale, what he found was it turned into something that everybody in school would love to see rather than some nasty curve, a straight line, a straight line with a slope. And it turns out if you have a distribution that when plotted on log versus log scale, so the vertical axis is still the number of wars with a certain number of casualties, the horizontal axis is still the number of casualties for a war. When he plotted it on a log log scale, what he found was that the distribution looked like just like a slope, like a you know, someone drawing a very simple mountain with a straight line down, a slope, a single slope, a single slope value. Now, this is where it gets a little bit technical because if it's a straight line slope on a log-log plot, that means it's something called a power law. I'd just jump in there and say that if anyone who has listened to our Jeffrey West episodes on scaling, our three-part series on scaling, this is exactly the same power laws as you would have seen back then. Can you just visualize for the listener, you've got a XY graph, you've got a slope tailing down from, from left to right, it's a straight line. What does that mean in English terms? What does that mean in terms of the type of conflicts we have and the number of casualties we get per, per conflict? Yeah, so Richardson actually found a power law of around 1.8. In other words, the slope was around 1.8. What that means is if we know, for example, the number of conflicts which produce 10 casualties, then the number of conflicts that produce 100 casualties is going to be a 50th of this. And the reason is because the ratio of 10 to the minus 1.8 divided by 100 to the minus 1.8 has that 50, 50 factor. So the beautiful thing of power laws is that that same factor of 50 then applies for comparing how many conflicts are there with 100 casualties compared with how many conflicts are there having 1,000 casualties, how many are there having 1,000 compared with 10,000, et cetera, et cetera. And you can quickly see, because that's dying away, that number's dying away, it's dying out by a factor of 1 over 50 for every time I go up in scale by 10, you can see why you end up with, well, there was only one war that's the size of World War I or the size of World War II, and yet there are, we hear many, many wars, and we don't even necessarily call them wars, we call them skirmishes and conflicts that have 10 casualties. What you're saying there is really quite profound. You, you're saying that we can go out and pick any 
war with a certain number of casualties in history and count up how many times a war of that size has happened and it fits neatly on a straight line graph. Correct. I mean, certainly insane when we think of it in terms of individuals and the chaos of war and the and the reasons, the, the various reasons, I mean, the, the myriad reasons and terrains that wars are fought in. But there's a common factor. In the end, it's fighting, it's violence. And the way in which groups of people get together and they fight and then maybe they're being beaten for you know, a few hours so they back off and then they kind of reform forces and then they go again and then they... That, when I begin to say it in the kind of collective view, just like the sand piles, you know, the, the avalanche, if, if I start thinking about what each individual sand particle is doing, it sounds crazy. But when we start thinking of the collective, all oh, the motion of it, ah, the kinetics of groups of people banding together, getting defeated and then regrouping the next day and going again and having another event, then maybe recuperating for a few days and then going again, that kind of to and fro, that kind of feedback from the past is to dictate the next event. You begin to get the idea why there might be some kind of pattern in there. And just to go to another analogy, I mean, traffic is chaotic. Most people living in cities, traffic is chaotic. And yet traffic was one of the first examples where they found, of of repeated human behavior, where they found these patterns appearing. It didn't matter, you know, we're all different. Maybe we have a dental appointment one day, we're not in the traffic. And the next day, you know, we go in a car because it's raining and so does everyone else. It doesn't matter that, that those kind of individual variations get smoothed over and the collective behavior of the system as a whole becomes predictable. And that's exactly what we're seeing with the power law emerging for human conflict. On an individual level, conflict makes little sense. People, psychologists are still trying to work out why individuals become violent. And there's endless, endless literature on studies one way or the other, what makes somebody a, a more violent person than another. But collectively, when people do things in groups, a predictability can happen. And conflicts, wars, in the end, are collections of people doing things in groups, just like traffic is, just like financial markets are. And you would say that the you would say that the the key bit here is that when you talk about the heights of the people being independent and their heights being independent, what you're really saying there is that if I hang around with a person that's taller than me, I don't get taller because of hanging around with them. In other words, they don't influence me. My height is a property of my independent self and doesn't get changed by someone else being, being near me. Yeah. So if one of the kids, for example, in the room starts growing more than the other, it doesn't affect the others. They'll just take their place in the distribution and that distribution will be whatever it is and it will look like a bell curve. But imagine a world where the taller the kids you hang around with or the taller the adults you hang around with, the taller you become. And in fact, by you becoming taller, you also make them taller as well. And vice versa in terms of shorter, becoming shorter. Now you're going to stretch out that bell curve, that upside down U shape. In fact, you can see, well, if there's a feedback process, which is really what we're talking about here, if there's a feedback, if my height affects you and your height affects someone else and their height affects me and we're all interacting in the sense that our heights are affecting each other, 
it doesn't sound impossible that we could get end up with somebody who's you know 50 foot tall and somebody maybe occasionally someone who's 500 foot tall so you get a sense that it's feedback it's history of who you've interacted with where you've been and how that if heights were dependent on history of who you've interacted with that history will be embodied in that power law it will be the thing that creates that power law and if we just if we just bring that back to you know complexity science you know we're always talking on this podcast about complexity science is really all about the interactions and we've talked about feedback before in many episodes as well and that feedback and those interactions just like you talked about there produce this different type of behavior this behavior doesn't fit in a bell curve instead it produces these these fat tail distributions which we can draw as straight lines as power laws when we put them in a log log scale and fundamentally you're saying that that's why we see these power laws in many complex systems, we see them because the complex systems, by the very definition, are complex because they have the interactions, because they have the feedback, because they have the the ingredients necessary to produce these sorts of interactions that produce these power laws. Yes, correct. And then when you think about it and you think about why are there so many systems having these power laws, Actually, I think of it the other way around. Why are there ones that don't? Why, when would you ever get an example that doesn't? And it's, it's literally down to things like the kids in the room and the adults in the room or flipping a coin where all the coins are different and independent. They're really the only examples where you're going to get that. So it's like, it's the non-elephants, you know, it's the, the world is actually full of these power laws and full of these feedback processes. And understanding the mechanisms that create them and therefore the mechanisms, what feedback goes into those mechanisms is going to be key to understanding them, to getting the right slope and understanding the value of that slope and therefore predicting what will happen in the future. So let's let's talk about the slope for a moment that you found. Back in Jeffrey West's episode when we talked about metabolism and animal size, he had a, a slope. His straight line was, was going up from left to right, whereas yours is coming down. And his slope was 75%, 0.75. So if you double the size of an animal, you didn't have to increase his metabolism by 100%. You only had to increase it by 75%. And then when we talked about things like patents in a city, if you double the size of a city, then you your the number of patents that city produces goes up by 115%. So you get a, a super linear one. What slope did you see in the casualty data, Neil? And, and what does what does that I suppose put it into English for us in the same way as we, we, we talk about the doubling the animal but only increasing the, uh, the metabolism by 75%. Yeah, so Richardson found that the slope was around 1.8. Now, that's a very important, not exactly the number of 1.8 is important, but the fact that it is between 1 and 2 has a very important consequence. So Richardson found that the number of, of wars having X casualties total varied like Y, which is the number of wars having X casualties, goes like equals X, the number of casualties, to the minus 1.8. So this is important. What does that mean? Well, if we were 
to go away. Imagine someone has set us a horrible homework problem and we have to go and work, and work, work out the average of that distribution. We're always working out. After all, we do it for the kids, the heights in the room. I take the distribution, the bell curve, I multiply it by the height and I integrate it across all values of the height. That's how we work out an average and it's a horrible problem to do, but you can do it. And you get like, you know, five feet, eight or whatever it is. If you do that with a power law that has a value, the x to the minus a, the a is 1.8, it's between one and two, you get a mean value, an average value, let alone the size of the variations, but the average value is actually extremely large. It becomes unstable in the sense that it becomes as big as your data set. And that's a very hard thing to explain. What's happening is that the average begins to get dictated by your largest examples in your data set of conflicts. Now, why is this important? This sounds a very technical issue, but this is very, very important because most of our planning, my pension, our calculations of, you know, what an average blood level of, uh, you know, cholesterol, et cetera, they're all based on ideas of like the heights, distributions like the heights. In other words, that whatever it is, we all go into the doctors and we've all got like a number around five foot eight or the equivalent for whatever biochemical things being measured in our body, plus or minus a bit. And if we go outside that bit, then we're in trouble. The same with, you know, kind of measuring pensions. Oh, yes, this is your average value of your pension. Well, if the markets vary a little bit, it will just be plus or minus a little amount. But if we have a power law and it has a power between one and two, as Richardson did, it means that that average value that you calculate using that horrible homework problem doing the integral is not representative of your data set. It's not representative in the same way that, you know, saying, well, five foot eight, yeah, that's pretty representative of what, of, of what, so if somebody new walks in, yeah, they're going to be around five foot eight. That is not the case when you have a power law because you've got this very, very long tail, this very fat tail where the probability of having the 50 foot person, the 500 foot person is not zero. It can happen. And so suddenly it's almost like you can't predict the average using the old ideas of averages. And so scientists have worked out a way around this by talking about the largest value and the variations that you'd expect. But that is how we should be talking about conflicts, not the average like heights in a room plus or minus. Conflicts do not happen in that way. They have feedback that creates a fat tail distribution that is a power law. It means that we can't say, oh, I think the current war or the current conflict will produce this number of casualties because ones in the past like it have. And does this mean that if we think of that, you know, that 50 foot person, say like the Second World War, for example, does that mean that the self-similarity, which we'd have talked about before, that all wars are just a collection of battles or a collection of engagements and just the really big wars with lots of engagements have more casualties but the fundamental mechanism that's creating those casualties is the same or is it different now? Yeah no it's exactly that it's saying that large wars are just small wars on a different scale in other words the way that the humans fight it 
there's a way that humans fight wars, whether they're a small war, a larger war, a big war. Now, this is almost like heresy in the war studies field <laughs> because they even have journals that are small wars and, um, you know, presumably there's a journal of large wars. I don't know. But it completely turns on its head the way people think about severity, risk, and therefore also planning about conflict, about human conflict. So in other words, the small skirmish, in some sense, is just a scaled-down version of the large war. So what you're saying there is that you can't predict the mean number of casualties you'll get in a war, but you can predict the probability of the total number of casualties you could get in a war. In other words, what you're saying is, yeah, we can put a real number on whether we'll have a war of this size and a real number on whether we'll have a war of a much bigger size, but there'll be a much smaller probability of the, having the bigger war. Correct. And the important point, the bottom line takeaway is not to think about an average number, an expected number, some number that, well, I've got a war, oh, it's going to have this average size. Whereas we'd say, oh, here's a human, here's an adult, ah, they're probably going to have the size five or eight. So the reason this turns things on its head, first of all, you can imagine just for a planning kind of, of idea, but the idea, therefore, that there's some good news in this because it means that the kind of models that people create, even as abstract as science sand piles and these kind, probably say more about human conflict than all the studies of psychology of, you know, how people, what makes them go out and shoot a, you know, suddenly if they've never shot anything, then they're in a war and they shoot some. All of that, in some sense, goes to one side because operation what produces the casualties the number that's measured the number that has a power law operationally there's a mechanism that's the same for small conflicts medium conflicts and large conflicts so if we can work out what that mechanism is it's going to have feedback in it but what realistic mechanism would produce this then we're on to a winner because then we can think about how interventions could change it. And is there a theory, Neil, on where this 1.8 comes from? Yeah. So we and others have been staring at this for many years. Richardson himself, he started to think about maybe, you know, wars are related to the lengths of the borders between countries. But then, you know, hey, what about countries that don't have a border with any other country? Or, you know, how do I even measure the border length? And he got off into the idea of fractals in some sense came from that. It's like, well, you know, I don't quite know. It doesn't matter what scale I go to. You know, I'm always seeing very variations. But bottom line is Richardson did not have a mechanism. People looked for mechanisms for many years. And it wasn't until we were studying insurgencies and we started to get data on the daily scale, on the event scale within conflicts the mechanism that holds the key to understanding the 1.8 and actually not just the 1.8 for casual, total casualties in wars, but also what's going on within a single war. That's another story. And that's a story that we're going to talk about in our next episode. Neil, thank you very much for being a part one and we'll see you in part two. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. Thank you.